doctrine of effectual calling. And this is a very important doctrine. Uh, maybe we say that each week, but I think it's important, at least for one reason, is that it answers some serious questions that face us in the biblical text, um, such as man's problem of his fallen condition, right? How, how are we, too, if, if, if the Bible teaches, as we believe it does, that man is, is hopeless in his uh, state in Adam, that he's unable to, to remedy his situation on his own, then what is the solution? How is he to, to have his enmity with God um, broken, if you will, and have that fellowship restored? Well, it comes through God's effectual calling, God's power by His Spirit and through His Word to save sinners. And so I'm going to pray, if I can, one more time and just ask God's uh, blessing on our time together. Our Father in Heaven, we do pray now, Lord, as we come to take up this great doctrine. We pray, Lord, that You would help us, Lord. Um, It's the end of the night as the Time has changed. It feels later uh, maybe than it is, and we're weary and whatnot. And so we pray, God, that you would use the the presence and power of your Spirit here in this place and within us to give us a a sanctified focus, that we might have our attention upon this confession. Lord, help us as we, as a body, want to discern if, if this is your will, that we might adopt this confession as our own, that we might hold these truths to be the, the, the things that identify us here as a local church. And so give us wisdom as we proceed. Um, help me, Lord, to be faithful in what you've called me to, to do here this night, to be helpful to these saints. We pray for the children, Lord, that you would effectually call them to yourself, that you might be pleased to work faith and repentance in their, in their little hearts, Lord. We know there's no age requirements on salvation. So we pray, God, that even now you would do this work in our midst. Help them to understand and worship with us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is effectual calling? We talked about it last week or two weeks ago, I believe. Um, but we need some refresh, refreshing there. Um, Joel Beakey has a, just a little pithy statement in his not pithy, Reformed systematic theology. He says this, At the heart of the doctrine of effectual calling is the idea that God calls His elect so powerfully that they are saved. It's a pretty simple statement, right? But if you think about it, that's really, that's really what we're getting at. That's really what we're saying. That God calls not just anyone, But he calls his elect, and he does so, so powerfully that they will be saved, right? That they are saved. It is a work that God is doing. It is not simply, remember we we, we talked last week, we're not simply talking about the, the outward or external call of the gospel that a preacher might proclaim in a pulpit or that you might share with someone in your family, a stranger on the street. That, that is the outward call, the external call. But we're talking about something inside of the soul that God does as he draws a man to himself. 
He goes on to say that this calling is not merely an offer, but a powerful act of God that applies redemption. It's not merely an offer, but a powerful act of God that applies redemption. That, that's sort of a, a, a shortened way of shorthand way of of getting to the point of what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the power of the Spirit to call a dead sinner to life. Uh, we read last week or last time. I'm going to keep saying that. Second um, Corinthians chapter two and verse thirteen. Good evening, brother. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, and let me just read that to you again. He says there, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So these people are saved, Paul says, through being set apart by the Spirit and believing in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. And so God uses the preaching of his word, but he does so with the power of his spirit to bring men to himself. Why don't we read paragraph one? It sums this up well. It's a bit more robust than what we just said, but it's worth reading again. Paragraph one, chapter 10 of the confession. Those whom God hath predestined unto life, He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature. That's all men, but the elect here to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And look what he does. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet, this is important, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so we walked through that for most of our time the last time we met. We saw that the recipients of this effectual calling is not all men. Because when God calls a man in this fashion, he will be saved, right, infallibly. And so the recipients are those whom God hath predestined unto life. The author of this effectual calling is not man in his strength, but it is he The Lord, in His appointed time, He is pleased to do this work. We considered the efficacy of God's effectual calling. It is, that is, He calls effectually. He calls powerfully. His spiritual work in the heart of a man has an effect. It works. It accomplishes that which He sets out to accomplish. We saw the means that he uses. What are those two things? He uses his word and his spirit, right? The word and the spirit. Watson, we we saw last week, says that the preaching of the word is the sounding of God's silver trumpet in men's ears. 
God speaks not by an oracle, not by a vision or a dream. He calls by his ministers. And he goes on to say, so perhaps you think it is only the minister that speaks to you in the word, but it is God himself who speaks. Therefore, Christ is said to speak to us from heaven, Hebrews 12, 25. How does he speak to us? By his ministers, as a king speaks by his ambassadors. Know then that in every sermon preached, God calls to you. And to refuse the message the minister brings is to refuse God himself. Again, as I said last time, um, our brother Thomas Watson has a high view of preaching there. right? Insofar as the preacher is rightly preaching the word of God, he speaks the words of God. The other means, Watson says, uh, uh, of the effectual call is the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the word is the pipe or organ. The Spirit of God blows into that instrument, effectually changing men's hearts. And he quotes the book of Acts, While Peter spoke, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word of God. So the word is faithfully being proclaimed. Now, does Peter see that? Does Peter see, hey, look, the Spirit's falling on Dustin right now. Oh, sorry, not, not over here. You know, no, he doesn't, he doesn't have any idea, right? He, he might think there might be a response visibly, but he's simply doing what he's called to do, and the Spirit of God is pleased as he desires to fall upon certain men or all men. He says that the Spirit, uh, or excuse me, the minister knocks at the door of men's hearts. The Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. We love that beautiful flowery language of, of, of Thomas Watson. And so he uses the, work, the, the word in the spirit. We also saw the work accomplished there in paragraph one, the work that he is accomplishing. And there's a lot there. It's beautiful to think about. But there's this from and to. He's rescuing us from and he's bringing us to. Right? He, 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 he takes us out of the state of sin and death in which we are by nature, and he brings us to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And there are three things that he is working on in the life of a man. We saw that he, he changes the mind, he changes the heart, and he changes the will. A heart that was, that was resistant to God, uh, a mind that did not understand or care for the things of God, and a will that was stubbornly rebellious against the call of God, all of a sudden is overcome by the power of the Spirit as God works through His Word. And we saw, lastly in paragraph 1, the response of man. Does he come kicking and screaming? Does he come reluctantly? He comes willingly. He, he comes uh, seeing the treasure finally for what it is. He has no other choice. And when I say he has no other choice, I don't mean that God has so coerced him that he's forced to come. Uh, what I mean is, he is he's been given the ability to see the treasure for what it is. And he has no other desire but to come to God in Christ and lay hold of that which has been offered to him in the gospel. Beaky gives a, 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 a larger definition a bit later in, in his uh, writing on effectual calling. He says it like this, effectual calling is the sovereign summons 
of the triune God, by which, according to his eternal election of individuals, through undeserved grace, he produces gospel faith and repentance in them to create a new people in union with Christ who live in holiness while God infallibly brings them to glory. Notice he's, he, he wants to put in there that transformed life, right? These are people. If you've been effectually called, your life will be changed. You will turn away from things that you once loved and you will love things that you previously turned away from. Old things will pass away and new things will come if you are a new creation. And we don't want to measure everyone else's sanctification by, by our own subjective standard, maybe by our own life or what we've seen or what have you. We all, God is working in us differently. But nonetheless, a new man will be a new man. Amen? You will be changed. You will be changed as you come to believe upon Christ because if you do, it is the Spirit that is at work in the heart. So that's paragraph one. That's sort of the overview. I know that was, that was quick. Uh, that was a recap of what we looked at last week. We then said in paragraph two that this work of effectual calling is monergistic. It is monergistic. Maybe you've heard of a, of a website called monergism.com. If you haven't, you're welcome. Go check it out. Um, massive, massive resource. I think they're, they, they take one main brother that does this, John Hendricks, but they take old Puritan works and put them into, they'll tweak them a little bit just to modernize the language, not, not um, completely, but some of the very archaic things are taken out and they give them away free in ebook form. You can go there and download. I think they're almost up to a thousand free ebooks plus a lot of other resources. Somebody help us out. What, what do we mean when we say that the effectual call is monergistic? What are, we, what are we saying by this word monergism or that it is monergistic? Somebody want to take a stab at that? No, those are both good. Yeah, mono is one, right? One source, one power, one one actor, one cause. That's four. One, one, one. Um, God is the one that is doing the work. He, he works on his own. The, the, the opposing or contrast there would be synergism or synergistic. That would mean that God and man are working together. Um, again, we want to be careful to, to, to not say that when a person comes to faith in Christ, we do nothing and we just sort of are drawn along. Hey, look, here I am. I'm on my knees praying for some reason. No, it's not that at all. But this initial work that God does is all of God. Let's hear what the confession has to say in paragraph 2 then. Um, This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. It's not from anything at all foreseen in man. So he doesn't look down and say, there's a good preacher, there's a good deacon, that guy's going to be faithful in serving me and he won't. It's, it's according to his good pleasure. Not from any power or agency in the creature. It's, it doesn't look at us and say, okay, he's going to get it and that guy's not going to get it. But the man, the man is wholly passive, being dead in sins and trespasses until 
Now, here's where we do respond until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, in that call. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Praise be to God. So man is passive until this work of effectual calling, this work of regeneration. And when he does that, when God does that in the heart, the man is then enabled. He wants to to respond. He he hears the truth in a a different light. Remember, when we come to faith, um, God God flips flips this switch on, if you will. His spirit works within us. But then we might say that we come... We come naturally, right? We come believing a set of facts. We, we come embracing information. Now, it's, we do so with the heart. Don't, don't hear me say that it's just uh, uh, intellectual assent. But when you came to Jesus, all of a sudden, you, you, you just kind of got it, right? And that doesn't mean that it had to happen in a moment in a church service. Sometimes, right, the, light, the flip... The switches flipped and you walked in dead and you went out alive. For other of us, we look at a season of our life where there were things happening and God was working and we don't know the day or the hour, but we know that there was a time when God made me new. You came to Christ. You you, you believed the gospel. You heard it afresh with new ears and and maybe more importantly with a new heart that was willing to, to receive and that loved the Lord Jesus. This work is a monergistic work. God is the one doing the uh, spiritual work here. It's not, as the confession says, according to anything foreseen in the creature. It is of his free and special grace. Man is passive until he is renewed by the Spirit. And that is when the work of conversion takes place. That is when we then respond in repentance. We then respond in faith because God has shown us that there is something far better than the sin that we've chased. It's paragraphs one and two. Why don't I just pause there? If there's any questions or anything to add, we're kind of clipping along pretty quickly. Well, paragraph three, we did spend some time on this last week. Um, This is a difficult, as I'm sure I said last time, um, pastoral issue that we have to deal with in the church. Paragraph 3 says, Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Um, so the confessors are, are saying here that um, God will be faithful to bring all of his elect to himself. Right? And if there is some that are unable um, because of mental capacity, or if there are some that are, that are unable because they never left the womb in their life, or they did very briefly, um, that God in his way, in his mysterious working, however it is that he does that, he will, he will bring those to himself. Um, I said last time, and, and many Christians would, would, would agree with this, 
that Spurgeon removed the word elect, right? So his version of the confession just said infants dying in infancy are saved and regenerated. Um, certainly not a hill that I feel the need to die on to say that's not true. Um, but for me personally, I have a hard time looking someone in the eye and telling them without a shadow of a doubt, if a baby has passed, that baby's in heaven, you know, no matter what. Um, I, I just think that the biblical evidence is not there to, to say it emphatically. Um, but we rest upon God's goodness. We rest upon God's justice. We rest upon the fact that the, the judge of the earth will always do what's right and what's good. And I, and I think there's, there's much hope that we can have there um, that the Lord will, will, will do what he does in his way. Um, some might say this is a contradiction because we just said that, that, um, that a person must be called, and we'll see it here, that a person must be called by the word of God. And we, we, we just said that. So how can this be the case? And, and, and those that wrote this confession... Are, their point, I believe, is that all of God's elect will be brought to himself, no matter what. All that have been given to the Son will come to the Father and will be received into glory. And there may very well be times where, um, where some are incapable. And we, we don't want to put them outside of the kingdom because of those mental capacities that God can do as he is pleased to do. Amen. Fourthly, the effectual call is is indispensable. Indispensable. This is this is what it says in paragraph 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature. That's the the truth of God in their heart. And the law of that religion they do profess. Um, this is important here, I think. It's some challenging stuff to think about. But I think it's important that we, that we understand what the Bible says about salvation and who can be saved. Um, so it talks about some that are, that are not elected, that have been called by the ministry of the Word, right? Um, so this is the external call. That is, they've heard the preaching of the Word, and maybe it, for a time they've responded. Positively, They've given a profession of faith. Um, it even talks about them having some common operations of the Spirit. That's an interesting statement. So what are we talking about here? Um, I think Hebrews... I think Hebrews chapter 6. I read that text when we began. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 I think is, is a helpful text that gets at what they're trying to say here. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, the second half, or verse 6 there, we're going to leave aside tonight because we'll, we'll wrestle with that all night long. Um, exactly what it's saying there, what, what this looks like when one falls away. Um, but nonetheless, it speaks of a person who is not in Christ, who is not a, a true believer. And it speaks about them being enlightened. It speaks about them tasting the heavenly gift. It speaks about them sharing in the Holy Spirit. It speaks about them tasting the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come and not being a believer. Right? That's an incredible <coughs> thing to consider. So what are we talking about here? Uh, think about a young person that grows up in the church right? and they spend their entire lives until they leave the home within the context of a faithful gospel community. Right? They're... There and they, they they submit at least externally they submit to the things that are going on they don't rebel there um, and so we would probably say that that young person's life was not riddled with sin at least in the way that many of their peers would be that were outside of the church uh, we would say that they had probably shared in many blessings of spirit filled people around them that loved them cared for them served them. Certainly, if their parents were believers, then they received that blessing from their, their parents. They were brought up in a home that honored Christ. And so, Lord willing, there was peace there. There was love there. There was, there was a foundation of righteousness that was there. They were cared for. They were, their souls were considered. And all of these blessings that we can partake of being part of the church, um, but blessings that are indirect. Right? The soul is still outside of, of the kingdom. I mean, we might even think about our children before, Lord willing, they do come to faith. That they're being blessed by being in the church. While they may be still in Adam, they're still being loved in a, in a unique way that they may not be loved out in this world. They're, they're sharing in the, the spiritual gifts of the body being used being, as they're being served in various ways even though they may not yet have the Spirit dwelling within them. Um, and so there is certainly the, 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 the opportunity for some to be in the church and to even manifest, right? Maybe because the young person is in the church, their sin was restrained. Their depravity was, was more restrained. They lived a life that was not um, licentious and overly, overly wicked. We think of the parable of the soils that Jesus told, and I've always been struck by that parable that um, he talks about four soils, right? What are the soils supposed to picture? Hearts, human hearts, right? And the seed, of course, then is the gospel being being scattered, if you will. And he, he speaks of four types of hearts, and does anybody know how many of those hearts, how many of those seeds sprout up? Three. Yeah, three out of the four, right? So I just picture a person preaching to a, 
congregation, preaching in an evangelistic meeting. And 75% of the crowd responds positively, says yes for Jesus, if you will, embraces Christ there publicly, is baptized, begins to follow Jesus. Their life seeming to be transformed. But, but two-thirds of that 75% is false. They don't have true faith, right? Listen to Matthew 13 and 20. For what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So we might say this is one that has not counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple. That when, when being a Christian is no longer only positive and only a blessing for his life, he withers away. He's unable to, to count that cost. Um, he, he's, he shrinks back, and it's shown that his, his faith is, is, is not real. But notice what it says. He hears the word, and he receives it with joy. Right? There's a, there's a, 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 a glad-hearted response to, to the things of God. I think there's a warning for us here. That just, just because someone prayed with us to receive Christ, just because someone went forward at some point in an evangelistic meeting, uh, just because someone for a time said, I'm following Jesus, that does not necessarily mean that it's true. Certainly, we want to have charity, and we don't need to sit back and say, yeah, well, we'll see in five years if you're really following the Lord. We rejoice when someone responds positively to Christ, but we also want to be wise and, and, and not be those that, that look at someone when they were 5 or 10 or 15 that appear to be following Jesus and then live for 40 or 50 years in the world rejecting Christ completely and have some sort of assurance that this person is somehow still in the faith, united to Jesus. Can a Christian backslide? Certainly that we can, Right? Our, this confession talks about believers falling into grievous sins that grieve God. Um, but that may be more than backsliding, right? A lifetime of, of abject rebellion of the Lord. So Jesus helps us to understand that this is a reality. And I just, I don't, I don't know that he's trying to, to get us to um, make statistics out of those numbers. But again, it just struck me that that three of the four respond positively. Three of the four, the seed takes root and sprouts up in a new life, looks like it has begun. But it's only one of the four that actually really has sustaining faith that, that is real and authentic. Um, Matthew, we also read in Matthew 22, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. And sort of this idea that the gospel goes forward, the offer of the gospel goes out. Lord willing, in the church, it goes out over and over. But only few of those that hear that external call are actually chosen of God, drawn of God. What might it look like? Let me just throw this out to you. I just talked about it. But what might it look like in real life for a, a, in a person's life, not a seed in the dirt, but in a person's life to see Matthew 13, 20, and 21 lived out? How might that look for us in this local church, just to make it very practical and personal, if uh, for a person to have that sprouting up, but then eventually as persecution comes, I mean, how, how might that look externally? How might that be played out, I 
guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I guess I'm saying initially, the the good, and then what you just said. Yeah, certainly. Um, maybe it's an odd question. Um, I'm just trying to, to us to get think through the the you know it would look good, right? It would look great. It would be something that we rejoiced over. They would start attending church. They would probably be baptized. They would have a Bible. They'd be in the Word. They'd be attending meetings. It would seem very encouraging and. Um, and, and, and these are things that we ought to be in, encouraged about. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Agreed. No, yeah, I, we, don't want, we don't want this to sort of dictate, oh, well, pff, they missed a meeting, you know. They must just be, t- they must just be phony. They're fake. Um, I, 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 I like what you're saying there. We have to go after them, pursue them, right? Call them to repentance, encourage them, you know, do, do all that we, that we would do, certainly. We don't look at this first and say, well, but I think this first should help us discern as we look long term at people's lives, number one that we ought to we ought to know that uh, a person can have what seems to be a very genuine response to Christ and it not be sincere, um, because there's some circles in the church that just say, hey, if they were sincere at that time or they meant it or their heart was broken over sin, that that's it. You can't question that. It has to be real. Um, you often see in in, uh, I don't mean to be overly critical here, but you often see in a sort of like a VBS environment, you know, you bring in a cu- bunch of children and seen this elsewhere and say, you know, who, who loves Jesus? Well, I mean, Johnny's got his hands, we're putting our hands up. Who wants to go to heaven? Well, shoot, I don't want to go to hell. Who wants to accept Jesus today? Well, the whole group. And so they, we come in and say, we had 47 kids receive Christ today. Well, we hope that's true. We hope that's true, but we need to be wise and discerning that most children, especially with peer pressure, are probably going to say, yes, there's not many. I mean, it's going to be maybe the kid with a leather jacket in the back is saying, I don't want Jesus, you know. But for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, um, most kids are going to go along there. So we just want, I think this first helps us discern that a person can have a very genuine appearing response to the gospel and over time, as they crash and burn, we can, we can at least, or we are warned that let's not, let's not assume all along, oh, they're just a Christian that needs to be brought along again. We, we might want to discern, that, well, they need to be, they need to believe the gospel. They need to be brought, they need to be called to repentance, right? So as we talk about the effectual call, you hear, you hear this language, and you also hear the language of regeneration, and we're basically speaking of the same thing. Let me read to you from um, Jim Dom. He says this, It is impossible 
to distinguish between the effectual call of God and the new birth. They are both the same thing, only seen from different viewpoints. One is a calling or a summons, John 6.44. The other is a birth, John 1.13. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. An emancipation, being delivered, Colossians 1.13. A circumcision, Colossians 2.11-13. A resurrection with Christ, Ephesians 2.4-6. and 6. All these Bible expressions are referring to the same thing. Effectual calling and regeneration. The Spirit's work in a dead heart to bring a man to himself. I'm going to get into some application, but before I do that, does anybody have anything to add there? Questions? Clarification? Push back. God is, God is so working in their hearts to, to renew their wills, to, to make them to, to see that which they didn't see in their sin, to make them, to give them the ability to want Christ, if, if I can say it like that. Um, let me read to you from, I was thinking about, about, He knows who he's going to come. Certainly he does. Well, it doesn't say that he knows who's going to come to him. It says that he chose them before the foundation of the world, right? He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Um, so the, 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 the one that is doing there is God in Ephesians 1, not man. I, I think it's saying a lot more than just God is looking from the foundation of the world who would choose him? It says that he is choosing who's going to come to him before the foundation of the world. God is the actor there. God's the cause. Not, not, he doesn't have only just knowledge of what man will do, but he's going to so work that those are going to come to him. Right? Um, so, as, as we saw, I think we looked at last time, Romans chapter 8, in the golden chain of redemption that begins with God foreknowing and predestining and then calling and justifying and glorifying. Uh, he, he does this with those that are his. And any of those that he foreknows are those that will be glorified. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so Jesus seems to place the new birth, the being born again, before one is able to enter the kingdom of God. He says also there, if you're not born from above, um, I'm paraphrasing that you cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone enter uh, that kingdom. Yeah, so what, what, what we're saying here, effectual call, is the working of the Spirit to give a man the desire and the ability to come to faith in Christ. And Ephesians 2 says that, that even that faith is the gift of God, not a work of man, so that we have nothing to boast in. 
I don't know that we totally. No, we did. Yeah, we did in the later, the later's, um, the towards the end. There, I have, I have a different Bible in front of me today. I left my bag at home. Uh, we also talked about um, a verse that, for me, is really just informative when we get into this debate and discussion, and it's First Corinthians chapter two. That we really have to, I think, grapple with what it means, and if it means what it seems that it means to me, then God has to do something. God has to work in us. First Corinthians two fourteen, the natural person. So who is the natural person? Is that a believer or an unbeliever? An unbeliever. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so Paul tells us here that a person that's dead in their sin, that's in Adam, that does not have the Spirit of God, that is an unbeliever, does not accept the things of God's Spirit. He thinks they're foolishness, they're folly, they're nonsense, they're unimportant. He's indifferent to them. Maybe he's completely opposed to them. Whatever the case is, he doesn't accept the things of God. He's not into it. He doesn't care. He's not moved by the gospel. He's not moved by the person of Christ. He's not moved by the cross. These things are unimportant to him, um, not only because they're folly, but because he is not able to understand them. The reason being they are things that are spiritually discerned. And so something has to happen for the natural person to be brought out of that state. Right? That's basically the, the conundrum that man is in. He thinks the things of God are foolish, and he can't accept them because he does not understand them. And he's hopeless there then, unless God does something. And what we're saying is that God in his grace does something. He acts. He acts powerfully. He acts mightily um, by his spirit through the proclamation of the word so that those that he is drawing, they come. Right? Infallibly, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. So there's the beginning, right? The Father's given Jesus a people. And Jesus says, all that he's given me, I will raise them up on the last day. I'm going to bring these people to the state of glory. I'm going to perfect what God has begun in them. Uh, none will be snatched out of his hand. He says, all will be raised up on, on the last day. So there's a people Father has chosen, they've been given to the Son, and the Son says, I will complete the work in all of them. None will be lost, but all will be saved. So application. Um, This is Thomas Watson, and I like Thomas Watson. He's he's just very helpful. He's very he's very his, his his language is often very illustrative, and he gives us three uses, three practical applications for this doctrine that ought to help us, that ought to encourage us. He says, firstly, take comfort if you have been called by God. Take comfort. <clears throat> this call in man evidences election. 
those he predestined, he's quoting Paul, he also called. Election is the cause of our effectual calling, and effectual calling is the sign of our election, and it shows that it is true. Election is the first link of the golden chain of salvation, and effectual calling is the second. All that he has predestined, he will call, and all that he calls, he does justify. As by the stream we are led to the fountain, so by effectually calling we ascend to election. Effectual calling, he says, is the pledge of glory. God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification. So be comforted. God has called you to himself. God has begun a work in you. And that is a work that he will perfect, that he will bring to completion. Doesn't mean that we we are um, indifferent to the call to obedience. Doesn't mean that we have a, a hands off Christian life where we're not hands to the plow seeking to serve faithfully our Lord and Master. Um, but it does mean that we can have a wonderful hope and assurance that God began the work. God is 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 keeping us today, and God will finish that work infallibly. He loses none that are His. Use number two, he says, be thankful. Be thankful that you have been called by God. He says, be thankful to all the persons of the Trinity. The Father's mercy, the Son's merit that purchased your redemption, the Spirit's efficacy, power to make you thankful. He says, be thankful and consider when when you had offended God. You had rebelled against God. You had sinned against Him. But beloved, He called you. Even though you had offended God. Many times. Very many times. He says, consider that when God had no need of you. He had millions of glorified saints and angels to praise Him. And still, He called you. (coughs) He summoned you to Himself. He says, consider who you were. (coughs) Excuse me. Before God called you, you were dead. You were doomed forever because of your many sins. He says, when God called Paul, he found him persecuting the bride of Christ. When God called Zacchaeus, he found him extorting and stealing from others. When God calls a man by his grace, he finds him seeking after his lusts. He says, when Saul was called to the kingdom, I believe he means as king, he was seeking the donkeys. (laughs) I'm not sure the verse he's referring to there. Maybe someone has that. Admire, he says, his love. Exalt his praise. They should call you when you were in hot pursuit of your sin. What mercy is this, that God should call you and pass by others? And thirdly, use three, walk worthy of the high calling to which you have been called. He quotes Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. This is a high calling, right? And he says it in two ways, that we ought to walk as we walk worthy. We ought to walk compassionately and walk holily. So firstly, walk compassionately, beloved. 
pity those that are yet uncalled. Do you have a child? Do you have a wife? Do you have a friend that God has not yet called? Weep over their dying souls. Weep over the fact that they are dead and doomed forever because of their many sins apart from Christ. Weep over the fact that they're under the power of Satan. Let their sins trouble you. He says, let their sin trouble you more than your own suffering, more than your own trials. If you pity an ox or a donkey, or I would add the puppy on the television, this is asking you for donations, the dogs in their little cages that was abused by a cruel person. Will you not pity a soul that is going astray? He says, show your piety by your pity for lost and dying souls. And secondly, walk holily. Yours is a holy calling. You are called to be saints. Show your effectual calling by a Bible life. Shall not flowers smell sweeter than the weeds? Shall not those who are emboldened, ennobled with grace have more fragrance in their lives than uncalled sinners? As Peter says, as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. Dishonor not, he says, your high calling by any sordid life. When Antigonus was going to defile himself with women, someone told him, You are a king's son. Oh, remember your dignity, church, called of God, of the royal blood of heaven you are. He says, Do nothing unworthy of your honorable calling. Scipio refused the embraces of a harlot because he was the general of an army. Abhor then all motions to sin because of your high calling. It is not fit for those who are called of God to do as others in the world do. Though other Jews, he says, drank wine, it was not fit for the Nazarite because he had a vow of separation upon him and had promised abstinence. Though pagans and nominal Christians take take liberties to sin, it is not fit for those that have been called out of the world and have the mark of election upon them to do so. You are a consecrated people. Your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, and your bodies then must be a holy of holies. End quote. That's our brother Thomas Watson. Helpful thoughts there. Um, effectual calling should give us assurance for ourselves, right? We should take comfort that God has worked in me. I, I, I didn't just live a life of, of, of whatever for however many years, then all of a sudden I just, I just got it. No, God did something. And I should find comfort in the fact that God did something in my heart. But also, effectual calling ought to give us confidence in evangelism in, as, we, as we proclaim the gospel. Um, is there not much encouragement in the fact that I am not the one that has the ultimate responsibility of convincing the person in front of me to come to Jesus Christ? I proclaim, I declare, I appeal, I plead, I, I do all of these things, but the Spirit has to own the preaching of His Word. 
Amen? And, and, and I think that there's a, the reason why there can often be a lot of manipulation and emotional appeal, emotional manipulation in evangelism is because the evangelist thinks that it rests upon my shoulders. And I just need to do whatever I can do to get that response. Because you can get a response. right? You can get people emotionally with music and whatnot to come forward and to say a prayer. You can get people to do that. But does that mean they're a Christian? It may and it may not. Um, but we have confidence that we are called to proclaim the word. As Spurgeon says, you don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to tell a lion to be a lion. You simply let it off of its chain. Um, the word does what it does. You just need to unleash it. And we can trust then that as God is pleased, he will use that word to effectually draw his own to himself. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for those here that are in Christ, that you have effectually called us to yourself. That there was a time in our lives that you were pleased to, by the power of your spirit, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, Lord, you were pleased to, to, to make us alive in Christ. Uh, you were pleased to turn the lights on. You were pleased to show us your incredible mercy. You were, you were pleased to, to expose our sinful hearts, Lord. You were, by your grace, uh, pleased to show us that we had offended you, Lord, that we'd broken your law, that you truly are our Lord and Master. And, and we came to you most willing, most freely. And so, God, we thank you for that wonderful work that you've done. We thank you for the hope that we have that because you've started a work, you'll finish a work. And we pray again for every soul in this room that they would be effectually drawn by the Father to the Son, by the Spirit. We pray for the children. We pray for the parents. We pray for the adults here, Lord. Uh, we, we, we don't assume that because someone's in a church, no matter what, that all are saved. And so we pray, God, if there be any here questioning, if there be any here searching, if there be any here uncertain, that you might... Um, make these things clear to their souls, whether they are in Christ or, or need to come in true repentance and faith. So work in us, we pray. Use these things to give us assurance in our own walk with Jesus and confidence as we seek to do the work of evangelism with the lost around us. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't we stand and sing the doxology.